Welcome to Your Rights at Work. This is Chris Garlock. Ed Smith and I are off this week. Here's a show from our archives, worked over how round-the-clock work is killing the American dream, originally broadcast on February 11th of this year. We'll be back live next week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Enjoy the show. This is a public... Two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. If you've got questions about your rights at work, two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. You can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We're at DC Labor. Uh, today, how round the clock work is killing the American dream. We'll be chatting with Professor Jamie McCallum later this hour about his new book, which argues that labor's next big battle, get this, Ed Smith, may be over not wages, but time. Very interesting book. Looking forward to talking about that. But first, an election loser refuses to accept the results and takes over the country. No, I am not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about the military in a place called Myanmar, the country formerly known, and still to some folks, known as Burma. The labor movement there has been leading the resistance to the military coup, and the American labor movement has organized a demonstration in their support. It's going on right now at the Myanmar embassy right there in Washington, D.C., and uh, I believe Kalia has got us on the line for a live report, Brian Finnegan. Brian is the Global Worker Rights Coordinator at the AFL-CIO's International Department. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Brian. Chris, I'm waiting on Brian, Chris. Yeah, I'm here. I have a friend um, named Phil Robertson, uh, who does a lot of that work. Hello. He's the Deputy Director of Human Human Rights Watch. There Hello, Brian. We got yes. Brian. Yes, Chris, Brian, you hear me? Brian. Okay, good. Are you at the yeah. uh, embassy, Brian? We were at the embassy for the first twenty what? minutes or so. We were at the embassy for the first twenty minutes or so. We moved over to the about a block and a half away, the military attaché, and these are the people who are doing the coup. So we're going back and forth. We've got a crowd in front of the military attaché at Twenty Third and California Street Northwest, and the embassy is Twenty Three Hundred S Street. Anyway, we're here banging, and we got some people from the AFL, from member unions, from the Solidarity Center, from the American Federation of Teachers. And you can hear a little bit of noise in the background, I guess. I don't know if you want to talk to some other people, but... Yeah, yeah, that sounds like the uh, the pots and pans. Uh, before we get a little bit into the background here, uh, the banging of pots and pans, it's, it's, a, it's a thing around the world, but particularly in uh, Myanmar. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, what has happened is, you know, the coup was on the 1st, on Saturday the 6th. Demonstrations became massive all over the cities. First tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands. The number of people are putting it over a million the last couple of days. A couple of days ago, the military declared martial law a curfew. They declared it illegal to have more than five people together in the city. But people are 
Young People Union started it, massive numbers. And people are, for now, ignoring what the military is saying, but this country has a history, so we are very aware of the violence that has happened in previous years. 1988, thousands of people were killed after protests. So we are, uh, they're, they're keeping a real spirit of celebration and positivity and peace, and we're trying to do that through here. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I know Ed has a question, uh, but just a, a real quick question uh, before we get to Ed, which is, tell us a little bit more about the, the, the unique role that, that labor plays uh, in, in, in what's going on in Myanmar right now. Well, they, you know, were in exile for years from the, you know, for many years they were in exile, but the movement since 2010 has been growing, and with the return of some beginning of democracy, growing civil society, the massive growth of the union has been really important and especially interesting because tons of organizing at Western and U.S. and European garment companies. There are a lot of women and young people leading the movement. The older people who are in exile have returned. They're advising, but there's a lot of younger and a lot of women who are leaders now. And they have been absolutely, the students and the union started this on the 6th, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger. So they are the leading part of civil society in this. We're talking with Brian Finnegan. He's the Global Worker Rights Coordinator at the AFL-CIO's International Department. He is live, uh, actually in between the embassy uh, and the another office there for the Myanmar uh, here in Washington, D.C. The military attaché office. Attaché, yeah, thank you. Oh, sorry about that. Brian, thanks for uh, coming uh, out and uh, talking with us. I hope uh, uh, you're staying warm. Uh, yeah. By the way, I have a good friend of mine. Well, not a great friend of mine. I know him through a really good friend. His name is Bill this is Robertson. Somebody, this is somebody you know, right? Somebody I know. He's a friend of a friend. Uh, Bill Robertson, yes. His name is Phil Robertson. And, yes, Phil, uh, he yeah, I, I figured you might know him. It's a small yeah. small world over there, just like labor is in D.C. Um, well, so I wanted to give a shout out to him. He's the deputy director of Human Rights Human Rights Watches Asia Division, and I know yeah, he's probably he used deep and heavy in this as well. Center. My question to you, my question to you is: um, Have you heard anything about um, the former leaders? What's happening with the um, with the leadership? Uh, has there been any arrests um, and, or people getting out of the country? Or what have you heard on the ground? Well, the political leadership has mostly been arrested and detained. A lot of people, well over 150. The union leadership, people are, some of them have gone into hiding because they know they uh, are on lists or will be on lists depending on what direction things go. There have been lots of, I think, religious and other civil society leaders arrested. Mm. Wow. And, and also I wanted to hey, point Brian, out that... Before we... Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Just to let you know that Cassie Feingold is international... Director of AFL CIO is here with me if you want to ask any questions here. Okay. Yeah, put Kathy on it. She lives down the street from me, but we never talk. She's always out jogging. Okay, I'll do that. He said yes. Okay. Is that all right? No, no, just yeah. like this. Okay. All right, we're going to talk to Kathy Feingold. She's the uh, director uh, of the International Department. Hello. Kathy, Kathy, I was just telling folks, you're my neighbor, but I, you know, anytime I see you, you're always out jogging, so we never have time to talk. But I'm, I this, know, this well, is what I have to do. I have to, to get you on the today. show. Fantastic. Great to be able to talk to you about this important issue. 
Hey, listen, so what? this is part of a global day of solidarity, right? Yes, we've had unions from Nigeria to South Korea, throughout the Americas, just around the world. It's a global day of action, standing strong with our brothers and sisters in Myanmar. Fantastic uh, show of solidarity, really. So glad that we can be doing it here in Washington, D.C. And just uh, one other question, Kathy. What, what's the what's the plan? I mean, you know, obviously Myanmar has a really long history of military coups. Uh, it, it's gone back and forth over the years. What, what's what's the sort of the next step? What, what do you, where do we go from here? Do you think? Well, I think we saw yesterday the world was uh, very happy to see um, you know the administration here in the United States talk about an executive order that was really. Um, hit the military in Myanmar where it counts, which is the economic sanctions, which are so important, sending a message that, you know, companies should not be complicit um, in this coup. They should not be supporting the military. So I think that has sent a strong message here to companies in the U.S. but around the world as well. Great. Ed, any questions before I let Kathy and Brian go? Well, yeah, always a tough question on economic sanctions in, in countries like this. Um, you know, one of the other concerns with economic sanctions uh, uh, is that it's just going to get passed off to the poor and the, and the military and the rich are still going to just get their, you know, eat their cake. Um, how do you respond to that? Well, we take our cues from um, our allies on the ground. It's a really good point about sanctions. And, you know, actually, allies on the ground, uh, first, you know, as a first step, we said targeted to the military. There's calls from um, the movement on the ground that they should be uh, blanket sanctions. You know, when it gets to be this extreme, um, they feel like it's an important tool. So, yeah. um, you know, sanctions have a history, I think, you know, of... They've been uh, controversial, but when folks on the ground are saying this is critical to our movement, this gives us support. And I think yesterday the announcement was uh, a real win for them. Yeah, that's where you got to take your lead. Just like in a union strike, you got to lead. You got to lead from behind in a way and listen to your members. So, thank you. Absolutely, Kathy. Thank you so much. So glad you guys are there on the ground. Appreciate you taking time to update us. Thank you very much. All right, great. Nice talking to both of you. Take care. You bet. That's Kathy right, Feingold. Yeah. She's the director at the AFL-CIO's International Department. And before that, we talked with Brian uh, Finnegan. He is the Global Worker Rights Coordinator at the AFL-CIO's International Department. And we'll be keeping up uh, with that uh, as we go forward. Um, okay. All right. Uh, and our next segment is uh, one that we, we're bringing back. We, we did this for a while, and then we got busy with other stuff. But there's so much labor news uh, in the news lately that, we, you know, that doesn't necessarily get reported in the mainstream media. So uh, let me let me hit you with. Some so this of these. segment. So this segment can be affectionately known as stump the DCNA boy. <laughs> That's very hard to do, but I'm going to do my best. All right. <laughs> Uh, so Amazon obviously has been in the news a lot yeah. lately. Uh, there is a, I always get a little, you know, kind of nervous. I don't want to make any predictions here because, you know, we get so hopeful about these organizing drives and, and, uh, it's, it's been very tough. Uh, and here's, and here's why actually this is uh, from the intercept. Uh, the headline is Amazon hired, uh, Coke backed, which Coke as in the Coke brothers, uh, not, the, you know, Coca-Cola, <laughs> Uh, anti-union consultant to fight Alabama warehouse organizing. 
uh, and this is them uh, bringing in uh, well-trained union suppression consultants. So you like that phrase, union suppression consultants? Kind of a, <laughs> kind of a nice phrase. What do you, what little, do you think? It's a little black Buddhist, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Suppression Plus, consultant. Yeah, union suppression consultant. Sounds, I, th- I guess that's better than union buster, right? No, I'm not a union we buster. We have I'm... ways of making you vote no. Right, we're, we're not busting the union, we're just suppressing the union. I don't know, it seems like the same thing, doesn't it? Man, uh, what a what an interesting title. But yeah, yeah, the, and the thing about it is this is a mail ballot, um, so which is what we want. But which, if, which Amazon fought, by the way. Right, Interestingly, right. remember what what did they want? They wanted people to have to come in, right? To, you know, during COVID, where they could be intimidated in person. Well, now they're going to be able to have about five six weeks where they get to intimidate and suppress, if you will. Um, so I'm a little nervous about that, and also it's a big unit. It's like six thousand people that are um, That's right. eligible voters, and from what I understood, it was a smaller unit initially that the union. Um, petition for, but then I guess they added more employees. So that's a it's a little nerve wracking, um, but it is a big election. It's Alabama, Amazon has not had uh, a win uh, like this, and so hopefully we can turn it around. I know that our national union has brought some VA nurses uh, like an hour away that are texting and calling uh, the the workers there, um, and I know another number of other AFL unions are getting on, you know getting texts and calls to try to encourage their uh, fellow Alabamians to uh, vote for um, Amazon on this, uh, vote for the union on this. Right. 202-588-0893. If you've got questions uh, about this or about your rights on the job, 202-588-0893. You can talk to Kalia. He'll connect you up with us. You can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We're at Labor. Uh, now, a couple of other just little uh, interesting bits on this Amazon story before we move on. Uh, this uh, union buster slash union suppression consultant, uh, $3,200 per day plus expenses. You know, not, not a bad gig, right, Ed Smith? You know, it makes me, <laughs> makes me, makes me question my... Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> $3,200 a day, plus expenses, plus expenses. You can wonder why they whore themselves out, right? Jesus. Mary Joseph, as my mom would say. Yeah. And here's a sad part about it. Uh, they've got a team of consultants that includes a former Teamster trainer who now mm. assists corporations with defeating union campaigns. Well, there so, you go, right? Yeah. There you go, where That's, there's money, right? Yeah. Sad to say, sad to say. Um, all right. Uh, here's one I know you're going to be interested in this one. Here's a headline. Maine Hospital brought anti-union consultants from out of state and vaccinated them. <laughs> I, I, I knew you'd like this one. Let me give you just a little bit more. This is uh, this is our friend Dave, Dave Jameson, a great labor reporter writing in HuffPost. Uh, a major main hospital system vaccinated anti-union consultants brought in from out of state to fight a staff unionization effort, uh, drew some rebukes from a nurses union and the state's governor. Uh, this is Maine Health, operates the Maine Medical Center in Portland, uh, acknowledged that it violated state vaccine protocols by administering the doses to a group of people with reliant labor consultants, a firm that helps employers scuttle 
union organizing tribes. Scuttles the press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all nice ways to talk about union busting. But I mean, I saw that and I was like, oh, Ed, 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 everybody knows Ed's with the the Nurses Association here in D.C. What the heck? Well, I'm wondering if that's being organized by my good friend and labor sister, Koki Giles, out of uh, uh, Maine. She's a, a Maine, Maine. Nurses Association, which is affiliated with the National Nurses Union. I, I suspect that's her union. It could be Massachusetts. I'm not sure. But, uh, oh, I mean, you know, should anything shock us anymore? No, I'm not shocked by them bringing in uh, anti-union consultants, and I'm not shocked by them going <laughs> ahead and giving them the vaccine. I hope they're damn well vaccinating the, the workers there. Uh, you know, it would be a less of a less of a body blow if they did that, but my God, you know, what, what a message to send about disrespect to, to patients and employees. It's just, it just, I mean, every time you think it can't get any worse, I was just like, oh, my God, just amazing uh, that, that, you know, uh, that, they, that they would even do this. All right, here's hey, a I, just got a, I just got a text from Corey uh, from NNU, and he said, yes, NNU is organizing that. Uh, All right, the, Corey. The thank thing. you, Corey. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, not surprised. NNU usually on the cutting edge of that stuff. Well, hey, if you can, uh, maybe we can reach out there and get her on to uh, the show to talk about that. But, you know, just a, a crazy, crazy yeah, situation. Yeah, let's make it happen. All right, here's a couple of, you know, sort of news that's not really, uh, you know, surprising. So in that sense, uh, here's a number I had not heard. Um, it's sort of CNN. More than 11 million people could lose pandemic unemployment benefits if Congress doesn't act soon. So I think a lot of times, Ed, you know, uh, folks sort of see what's happening in D.C., you know, with Congress, you know, mm-hmm. moving at the you know glacial pace. And it's like whatever, whatever. But this is real stuff. Right. I mean, 11 million folks uh, unemployment benefits. I mean, that's people not being able to pay their rent you know, put food on the table. That's, that's a lot of folks. And with, and with, um, eviction notices, yes. Yes. uh, you know, the, the ability to, to evict is going to come back, you know, and it just goes to show you why, um, it's important to pass this relief package. And yes, we do want to reach across the aisle Republicans to, to do the right thing, but when they don't do the right thing, we got to do, we got to do what's necessary to, to make sure that at least 11 million people are um, given some relief. And then, of course, more than just the 11 million, you're talking about the whole country getting relief. But it's what a sad day that we can just, you know, forget about, oh, it's only 11 million. It's unemployment benefits. Who the hell are they? They probably don't work hard enough anyway. You know, it's just a sad day when we get, the, get to this point. You're listening to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock and Ed Smith here. This is your show, Worker Rights. Those you have, those you don't, how to get them, how to use them. 202-588-0893. If you've got questions about your rights at work, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, At the break, we're going to talk with Jamie McCallum about how round-the-clock work is killing the American dream, so stay tuned for that. But uh, in the meantime, you can call us, 202-588-0893. All right, Uh, another one. I I, I just, when I found these, I thought, you know, this is just going to really blow Ed's mind. So (laughs) we have a a Federal Reserve Chair, uh, Jerome Powell, or Jerry as we call him, right? he said Wednesday, and, and I hope you're sitting Thank down. You. <laughs> I hope you're sitting down, Ed. Uh, the real unemployment rate in January was, quote unquote, close to 10 percent, significantly higher 
than the 6.3% reported by the Labor Department last week, right? So again, we have talked about this many times on our show, the way that they fudge the numbers, right? Right, right. Um, and so you are not going to be surprised that the discrepancy is due to, again, to the quote unquote misclassification of some jobless Americans. This was Powell uh, talking uh, in a virtual speech at the Economic Club of New York. So just real quick on this. I mean, it's a, it's <laughs> always been amazing me to, for years that they can just sort of, you know, uh, using words. And I'm a word guy, so I get it. Well, that's it. what I was just, you know, I was just thinking that, Chris. It's about what words did we just talk about? Suppression? What was mm-hmm. the other one about the, the, the thwarting union? I forget, but... And then misclassification. What a, what a lovely Orwellian word to talk <laughs> about a person that's trying to get work, right? But that, I, I didn't want to cut you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. I think that that's a whole I mean, you're still out of work, right? <laughs> right. So is this like Lyft drivers and um, uh, under, you know, uh, 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 cash economy type? What's well, the mis- so where, here's the thing. What are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, part of it, what he said was uh, correcting this misclassification. Uh, basically, what's happened is apparently, and I don't really understand this part, maybe somebody who's smarter than I am could figure it out, but they're, they're not counting people who have left the labor force since February of last year, right? right? So right, which is that, that's like a lot of people this time. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's typical. Basically, it's the that's the unemployment figures, uh, and it never adds never has added the people that have been out of work for over a year which I, I to me is like that doesn't make sense but well especially in the middle of a pandemic when you've got people mm-hmm. that are literally getting laid off you know overnight getting their hours cut getting laid you know laid off i mean this you know and again this is something we've talked about for the entire length of this show uh is is you know they've been doing this for years it's not like it just happened during the pandemic it's just right. that there's more people who have been getting laid off right. and more people who are getting laid off you know with very little or no notice um and so you know but i will say uh you know that the sort of the silver lining here is that at least you have the federal reserve chair you know who's you know not nobody admitting this they don't right. usually you know people of that like usually it's people like you and me complaining about it Right. I mean, that's a nice sea change, I think, um, to show that what, you know, education is an important thing and to educate the world and the country that the the unemployment numbers are higher than really what's often reported. That's the first step in trying to provide re- proper relief, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Now, here's uh, what I think is, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm connecting it. I don't, you tell me if I'm, if I'm way off. This is from uh, CBS uh, News. A year into the coronavirus, let me start again. A year into the coronavirus pandemic, many U.S. workers, now, now get ready for this, it's going to be a surprise, are anxious or depressed. Like, this is, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, really? This is news? <laughs> you think? Ed's <laughs> just smacking his head, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, right. I mean, is this news? I mean, we've been talking about that. Of course, they're anxious and depressed. And not just the people out of work, but the people in work. And, you know, I think about our nurses, the mental health of our yes. nurses. Yes. And, you know, and I have my moments of, of anxiety and depression. And I'm just a guy working from home trying to help people out. I'm not I'm not a police officer. I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a first responder. I'm, I'm not a grocery worker. I'm none of that. 
of course they're depressed and, and have anxiety. How can you not? And then not being able to see your loved ones, your, your, your 91 year old grandmother. I mean, let's, we, we could, you know, we could spend the next 45 minutes to 45 hours doing a litany of reasons why people could be anxious or depressed. Right. Well, to your, to your point, Ed, uh, almost half of full-time workers say they're experiencing mental health issues, including, this is interesting, a majority of millennials and Gen Z uh, employees. It's a recent and that's survey. And that's self-reporting. I think it's closer to 100, if we really were honest with each other. I, I would not be surprised. We're talking about rates of depression, anxiety, other mental health issues. They've been climbing since the pandemic. Uh, 46% of full-time workers reporting such issues compared with 39%, which actually, if you think, think about that 39% before the crisis, that is an astounding number already, right? Right. Again, self-reporting, right? So you know it's higher than that because there's a lot of people, because there's still a stigma about mental health issues, who will say no, and but in the back of their minds, yeah, they're feeling it. I'll tell you something. It's just uh, sort of riffing off of what you were just saying. You know, I have been just sort of riveted to this uh, trial in the Senate. And I usually what I'll do is I'll put my headphones on, go out for a little walk. I felt my, I found myself getting extremely and, and, you know, I'm not normally an emotional guy. Seriously. Right. I mean, I'm You're keeping the razor blades hidden and locked under. Uh, <laughs> no, I just found I mean, I think anybody uh. would find this stuff upsetting, but I, I just thought geez, you know, maybe I'm being affected by this pandemic more than I thought. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I don't don't know. Anyway, 202-588-0893 as we come into the last couple of minutes of this segment. Um, Oh, here's here's another one, another sort of economic one. A new analysis shows employment hasn't rebounded for poorer workers, people who make less than $30,000 a year. Have lost their jobs at higher rates during the pandemic and are having a really hard time uh, finding new ones. Uh, interestingly, Ed, uh, this is uh, while higher earners have actually seen their job prospects doing quite well, which really strikes me as uh, messed up. I can't use the word I was going to yeah, use. Yeah, the first the first part of it was uh, again another duh moment, right? Of right. course. The second part is that's a little unusual, and it might be good down the road, um, rather than just spending 15 seconds on this, Might be good down the road to talk to somebody that might have understanding on, 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 on the factors that give rise to that, because that's interesting. Okay. All right. Kalia is reminding me to stay on schedule here. We have <laughs> a little piece of music, about a minute and a half. Uh, it's called Ampun Bang Jago. It's uh, it's from uh, Myanmar. Uh, it's called Ease Up, Mr. Hotshot. This is a popular Indonesian song, uh, and it was widely used as a protest song during demonstrations against a job creation law uh, that spread through Indonesia last year. And it popped up in this amazing video that went viral last week after the military coup. Ease up, Mr. Hotshot, is what you say when some arrogant or self-righteous authority figure gets in your face. I don't know, like a boss or the military, for example. Let's let's uh, let's give that a listen, and we'll come back and talk with Jamie McCallum. Thank you. 
at work with Chris Garlock and Smith. That was Ease Up, Mr. Hotshot. A little viral video. Go ahead, Smith. Before you move on on that, uh, I, number one, I think it's really a funky tune. Obviously, I've never heard it before. And number two, where'd you find it? Did someone recommend or did you, or was this your own digging? Because this is a good call. You know, I just, I'm a very good uh, user of uh, of uh, Google. You just go on YouTube and you know, you Google, you know, yeah. Burma. I don't know something. Anyway, I found it. It's All actually right. I just I just posted it to uh, our at DC Labor Twitter account. You got to see the video because it's it's this woman. It's like an exercise thing, and the, and the coup is happening behind her. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> anyway, we've we've made it the walk on music for our next guest, who's. Uh, uh, this is uh, Jamie McCallum. He's a professor, and his new book is uh, How Round the Clock Work uh, is Killing Us. He's a professor of sociology at Middlebury College. His first book, Global Unions, Local Power, won the American Sociological Association's Prize for the Best Book on Labor. He's written for the po- Washington Post, Mother Jones, Descent, and Jacobin. And his latest book, as I said, worked over. He's in Weybridge, uh, Vermont. Is that right, Jamie? Right. All right. You got much snow up there? Because we're not getting any down here. That's all we got. <laughs> You're getting all our snow, brother. That's all we hey, got. Hey, listen, I wanted you to start off. Uh, I'm pretty good with the labor quotes. We actually have a regular feature. I thought I knew all the Karl Marx labor quotes, which, of course, was very arrogant of me. But uh, <laughs> you've, got a, you've, got a, you've got a great one to start off your book. I wonder if you could read it for us. Sure. There's always one more. So so I'll read this. This is, uh, uh, he says, the less you eat, drink, and buy books, the less you go to the theater, the dance hall, the public house, the less you think, love, theorize, sing, paint, fence, the more you save. The greater becomes your treasure, which neither moths nor rust will devour your capital. The less you are, the less you express your own life. The more you have, the greater is your alienated life. The greater is the store of your estranged being. That was Marx in 1844 in the manuscripts when he's 26, um, sort of waxing philosophical about the relationship between the need to work and the need mm-hmm. to live, which he sees are two different things. 
Well, I was thinking about this, Jamie, you know, that so many of us are either working at home and therefore the the, the, the line between work and not work uh, has, you know, essentially been erased or having to go to work under just, you know, horrendous, even more horrendous, let's say, than normal conditions. Your book is right on time and I think really explores these issues. Uh, let, give, give us some give us some thoughts just where we are right now. Yeah. So my book traced um, a rise of a transform, like a, a really historic transformation in the last century of American life, which is the reversal of the trend for decreasing hours. We've managed to increase our work hours from 1975 until now about 13%, which is about five and a half weeks per year. And that's a pretty shocking change from the century before, which saw a pretty significant decline as unions and reforming groups and feminist organizers all chipped away at the working day. And so I started with this premise of working time as the issue. And then slowly the book, you know, moves through that history and ends with a call to more or less um, a few ways to abate that and to reverse that trend. Uh, it came out this Labor Day. So just, uh, you know, sort of in the middle of the pandemic. And there's a few things I'll say just about how that how it fits into that. Uh, for most people working from home, the hours increase seems to have increased. <laughs> like we see people, like if you measure people's VPN usage, email usage, when they log into their computers, they're logging in not only more, but at worse intervals. So... And that's the other part of the story. So as you have this trend toward longer hours, you also have a trend toward worse schedules, more precarious uh, working days, and a greater number of people who actually need more time at work. So one group of people uh, incredibly uh, overworked, another group of people who basically is desperate for more hours to, 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 to survive. And those two trends have really increased in tandem. I want to bring Ed Smith in on this as my co-host. He works with uh, DC Nurses Association. So he's a sort of, you know, both of us are, are doing our jobs from home, but his members are obviously having to go to work. They're in that second group that you were just talking about where they're having to go to work. And in fact, obviously they're on the, the front lines, the, uh, the so-called essential workers who are actually expendable, apparently. Go ahead, Ed. Well, first of all, thank you for the quote. And I did get a chance to read it uh, in prep for this uh uh, uh, interview, and I was very glad that Chris wanted you to quote um, uh, Marx on that. It reminds me of um, John Lennon. I mean, I kind of think uh, I think John Lennon must have had some uh, Marx Marx in him. Um, but uh, beautiful quote. Um, yeah, you know, with with nurses. So over the years, nurses have really worked hard in negotiating different schedule uh, scheduling options. And it's been a very good boon for us. Uh, on, on the other hand, lately, management has come back and, and dug into that a little bit more. It used to be a nurse could come in five days a week, eight hours a day, four days a week, 10 hours a day, a 5-4-9 schedule, three 12-hour schedules with a shift here and there. And they'd have all these options. Now their management is limiting the options. But either way, what ends up happening is – even nurses that come into their 50s and late 50s and early 60s, if they've got a three-day, 12-hour shift of 36 hours a week, sounds good. 
But what ends up happening is they take overtime. Sometimes they're mandated to take overtime. So you have many of these nurses that are now working 50 hours or more. Um, they're getting the money for it. Um, but then the question is, is uh, injuries to them, uh, definitely uh, patient care uh, issues and burnout issues. Um, and I suspect that nurses are not the only profession that we see this in. And I was just thinking, even in my terms, in my job, I was doing emails, texts at 11 o'clock last night. Mm -hmm. Now, when we weren't doing the pandemic, I wasn't doing that. I think what's happening with me just emotionally, intellectually, I'm figuring, okay, I'm always on my, I'm always on the clock. So I'm thinking, so if something comes into my head about something for DCNA, I put it in my phone, type it in there. And then I either text immediately or just have it as a note. The same thing is true with like, I, I play music. So if I, if I hear some song, I'm doing the same thing. So my brain is just constantly going. Um, those me, are some me, of my thoughts. Let me get Jamie to respond to that. And Jamie, when you do, I also want you to talk about this um, because Edward was talking about shifts and, and, and you have an interesting thing about, I, I always hate this word, this clopening, people who have to open and close, which yeah. it's just absolutely to me, Absolutely. I mean, it should be illegal in my book, but anyway, go ahead. Mm -hmm. So the nurses thing, I think is really interesting because as you said, they had, they've historically been able to negotiate pretty significant or some degree of autonomy in their schedules. Let's figure out what works for you kind of thing. Obviously the pandemic has eroded some of that. And uh, because there's just a, a greater demand. My understanding also is that nurses are leaving the profession. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is creating a shortage of people, which increases the number of travelers, uh, which increases the the necessary overtime. Um, all these it pre it, it it changes the game a little bit. Uh, and because nurses are probably, I mean, among the most important people on the planet right now, with people leaving the profession, that must be, that must, I mean, it's it's crazy. You know, it's crazy, and it must undermine to some extent our ability, everyone else's ability to do their jobs well during these times too, I'd imagine. Yeah, I agree. And then, uh, Jamie, if you talk about, uh, you know, another one with the retail workers who are also, you know, I mean, right. just un under just terrible pressure right now. Right. So, so retail work is interesting because it's, we have an, we have a perception that it's just a bunch of college kids and high school kids out there, you know, making change, spare change. It's not. It's a, it's a workforce that spans like age, race, and uh, gender groups. Um, there is low unionization in the industry. And the interesting, interesting thing in the last 10 years is the scheduling situations. So, so management have, has managed to institute widespread like um, electronic scheduling algorithms that schedule workers according to uh, basically a computer expectation of what sales will be for that day. So if you work at Jamba Juice and it's raining, no one's going to buy a Jamba Juice that day. Your 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 hours will be cut. If it's uh, high 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 bodies in the store that day and it's around the holidays, uh, your shift will be added to. And there's more than enough people to take your job. If you see, if you, if you walk off that shift or if you don't show up, right? Like there's more than enough people to, re to replace you if that schedule doesn't work for you. 
So what unions have managed to do and what workers have managed to do is to win some uh, significant reforms to how scheduling is done. So now, so for example, where I live in Vermont, there's a right to request law where you have to, you, you have the right to know a month in advance, let's say, when your schedule is going to be. However, if you walk up and down Church Street in Burlington and talk to retail workers, none of them know that law exists <laughs> because they have no union, right? And so you, what we really need, is, the, the change we really need is for unions and this law to begin to sort of working together where people can uh, take advantage of some of the legal changes that have happened. Talk about this uh, automated productivity tracker that uh, that the workers were calling the electronic whip. So, I mean, there's all I mean, there's a hundred and some year history of managers measuring, calculating, rationalizing people's work time. This is like Frederick Taylor to now. And the most recent incarnation of this, a lot of it is. Uh, computer algorithms or some other kind of electronic device in the workplace that measures individual productivity and efficiency. The one I talked about in the book that you're mentioning is uh, deep down below Walt Disney. There's a laundromat which um, measured workers' productivity according to a leaderboard. So you can see, your, you would see your name blink off and on with a color next to it if you were going fast enough. And if you oh, uh, weren't, you know, they they would they would encourage you to speed up. Um, some people managed to fight against that and managed to challenge that. And uh, the union there, I, I think it was Unite Here, um, managed to push back on some of that, which is great. But there's tons of workers that don't have a union, obviously, and don't have the ability to fight back like that. Let's uh, let's let's talk a bit about some of your ideas about how how to deal with this, which it was interesting. It made me think about the eight hour movement, which was over a hundred years ago and was a massive, massive movement in, in you know so many ways. But w- what are some of your ideas about how we can actually deal with some of these issues? Well, yeah, I mean, when you think about the eight hour movement, I think people think that at some point they went on strike in Chicago and then they got and then they got the eight hour day. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's how that happened, right? It was like a century and a half long slog, you yeah. know, and uh. Uh, they struck for the 12-hour day. Carpenter struck for the 10-hour day. The eight-hour day took itself 80 years to get. And a lot of people still don't have it, right? <laughs> I mean, tons of, I think over half of workers now do not work a five-day-a-week, nine-to-five job. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think that the eight-hour movement is important because I do think, as I talk at the end of the book, we do need a movement. There are laws that we could potentially lift from Germany or wherever, and say, look, if we had more uh, paid time off, we'd work fewer hours. <laughs> or if we had uh, Medicare for all, we wouldn't spend so much time bargaining in our contracts over health care. We could bargain over other things like wages and hours. Um, the auto workers, the, the industrial unions won practically a sabbatical in the, in the 70s. I mean, they had 10, 12 weeks off at times. And slowly but surely, that was chipped away during bargaining over over benefits, over things like health care. So Medicare for all would actually be a pretty big boon to for a shorter hours movement. But ultimately, I think what we need actually is uh, unions. I mean, sort of obvious. <laughs> unions were the thing that got us to shorter work week to begin with. And as they've been chipped away at, especially since the 70s, 
hours have gone up. It's like almost like a mechanical lever. And there are plenty of examples in public opinion polls in which workers say, I would never want to work fewer hours unless they made more money. And then they would, right? So it's like, you know, some the Washington Post reviewed my book and they said, he never says how we will, how we will get shorter hours. And it's like, well, one of those ways is to pay people more money per hour. Right. And there's a lot of historical precedent that says that people will, will, will bargain and negotiate and desire to work less. Well, and that to me is a key thing uh, that sort of underlies what you're talking about, which is it's been amazing. We've made all these technological improvements, right? We're so much more efficient. And yet, and yet somehow it reminds me of, you know, what, what, what people have gone through with home appliances. I mean, all these labor saving home appliances and, and we're working harder than ever, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's what happens, you know, with, with work, like we're not, somebody's making bank on this, but it ain't us. <laughs> right. Well, the, the home appliance thing is interesting. Like, you know, the kitchen, uh, you know, there's a chapter in my book on like sort of the way that productivity culture has been sort of internalized. Right. The kitchen itself was rationalized. Like the kitchen island is a way to decrease the footfalls that it takes to bake or cook in your kitchen, for example. Right. Right. And, and you know, William Gilbreth was married to the productivity expert that that, that sort of succeeded Taylor, Frederick Taylor. And so there's that. And then there, I think, is the, you know, everyone's seen that chart by now where the where wages go flat from the 70s, where productivity and corporate profits go up. That's a that's what managers and and uh, the business class sees as success. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like it's it does take it will take a movement and a strong working class pressure to regain some control of that. But I do think the pandemic actually provides some, I don't want to be too Pollyannish, but like obvious opportunities where like these things begin to make a lot of sense. It's almost like, you know, uh, reality has a a left bias. I mean, obviously we need to divorce healthcare from jobs. Right. Right. right? We have tens of millions of people who lost their healthcare in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. Of course we need to do that. And so of course we need to make it so that essential workers aren't just sacrificial. Like, that's basically what they are. It's like we have a class of people in America who will be forced to go to work no matter what, for any wage, no matter the danger, usually without PPE, unless you have, unless you have a good union or a reasonable law. And so those kinds of situations, I think, have pulled back some layer of the onion on, on American work and said, look, there's, there's obvious uh, reforms that are pretty significant that need to be made. And I think, you know, we've seen workers on the offense throughout this thing, which I think has been shocking to a lot of people. But then when you think about it, actually, it makes total sense. I mean, yeah, I think uh, we have time to get, Ed, to get one more question before we wrap up. Yeah, just real quick with the Medicare for all, you know, we had labor was divided over this and it's finally coming around. So you, I look back at it and we talk about Germany and France and everybody gets angry that, oh, they got all this leave and that's why they're not as great as America. So I think the first obstacle is education and building a cultural change obviously i agree with the unionization aspect but uh that's my concern is that we still have this attitude that if you're having time off well you're a slacker you know i mean there's even that term slacker right so how do we i don't know in in the next um two minutes how do we how do we overcome that (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's obviously that's true. Like if you if you say the word Germany or France, people accuse you of being like a lazy communist, right? <laughs> like, those people have iPhones. They you know they 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 have they live fine in, in Germany, right? <laughs> They're very happy. Like it was not long ago uh, when we had more time off. It's not it's not like a crazy European conspiracy to have a long weekend once in a while, right? To have time to see your your kids and friends. Like that's not really antithetical to Protestant ethic. I think, frankly, a situation in which workers had more control over the conditions of their work when they were paid more to do it and when they had uh, more control to determine when they do it is a time when they would value more of their labor. Is a time when we're probably, the, you know, we would see a different kind of work ethic, not just a decrease in the work ethic. So I think that the culture shift will follow a political and economic shift. Not to sound like a vulgar Marxist, but I think like we reduce hours, people will appreciate reduced hours. Like I, I think it's I think that's the way it will probably end up going. Jamie, isn't isn't part of the the, the crux of this? It's interesting. We're we're actually seeing this play out on the national level right now with with things like you know, can you believe that we're actually talking about a bill? I mean, the, the minimum wage has been stuck at you know seven and a quarter you know since since God was a teenager, as far as I can tell, right? And now <laughs> now all, and 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 you know the history of it. Basically, it goes up you know like twenty five cents every ten fifteen years, or it used to. And and the Chamber of Commerce would scream bloody murder. The world is going to end. Um, and this. This time we're talking about going from 725 basically doubling it and who knows whether it'll get through in congress but i mean you know the fact that you know they're having a serious conversation about doubling the minimum wage which is the minimum freaking wage by the way it's not even that's i mean i think the last ad i saw was like over 20 dollars an hour is what you really need 20 25 dollars right. an hour so right. so just just a, just as we wrap up your thoughts on that yeah i mean the, the it's not 15 dollars an hour it is on the one hand, it's crazy. On the other hand, it's like makes makes total sense. In fact, we should, it should be twenty five dollars an hour, right? Right. right. Dollars is not a living wage. But who we have to thank is the McDonald's workers and the Burger King workers and the people ten years ago who said we want to double the minimum wage. Who everyone thought was insane. Everyone called them insane. You'll never do that. You'll never win. And they won. And they pushed lawmakers across the country to do it. And you know who knows if it will actually happen. But the fact that it's that we're so close, the fact that it's Biden that's doing it, you know, that 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 we have uh, sort of like a more pro-union administration that we've had in 15, 20 years, which is not saying much, but still is is incredible. But it really is is a movement based change. It's it, whoever passes that law. Fine. But the credit goes to people who started with SEIU 10 years ago. Hey, what do you think of Marty Walsh? I don't know. Everyone seems to like Marty Walsh. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, people seem. I, I, my my impression is that Marty Walsh knows Joe Biden well, and they think that the, sec, the that the labor person should have the ear of the president, because it hasn't happened for a long time. And so, if that's the case, great. And if if, if someone like Marty Walsh from Boston makes the pipe fitters like and the whoever in Kansas like vote more blue, that's also good. You know, that's what I think Marty Walsh was picked for. But other than that, it's like, who knows? I mean, the label is not woke, you know, and that's actually good for in a lot of reasons. And so I, I think that he's definitely a good change. I mean, the one thing I'll say about Marty Walsh is that he's the first Secretary of Labor in a long time who's going to at least have walked the freaking picket line. Or fix the toilet. Right. Right. You know, so it's like, that's great. 
Jamie McCallum, what a joy to have you on. We're definitely going to have you back. Keep up the great work. And hey, you know, don't work so hard, brother. Hey, you too. Thanks, <laughs> Jamie. Great job. Yeah, thank you. All right. Jamie McCallum, he's the author of Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. It's out now. You should check it out. Uh, Ed Smith, just as we go out, your final final thoughts on that? Because I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm, you've got to stop emailing me at 2 o'clock in the morning, man. <laughs> well, you know, I did. I texted uh, some people I know. at 11 last night. And, uh, um, hey, quick story about great Shoot. labor leaders. One I didn't get to say about John Sweeney. John Sweeney was a rock star. I used to do um, labor training at SEIU headquarters with my boss, Ken Lyons, at the time. And John Sweeney was so smart, always would let Ken speak first because Ken would bring down the house. I'm sorry, Sweeney would speak first because he knew that he didn't have the fire and brimstone. And Ken Lyons would give the fire and brimstone, bring down the house. And the coolest thing was, we had about 150 to 200 activists there. They all would have Sweeney and Lyons sign their books. Oh, I never wow. told them to do this. They just did it. They were rock stars. And John Sweeney was so gracious um, to allow Ken Lyons to be the closer. And he would be the quiet one, of course, leading a million people where Ken had maybe 100,000. So I just wanted to share one last John Sweeney story. I got many of them, but. Thank you, Ed Smith. And of course, John Sweeney, the former uh, head of the Service Employees Union and the AFL-CIO who died just last week. Oh, my God, it seems so long ago. So, uh, all right, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Your Work, uh, Your Rights at Work, easy for me to say, uh, produced by me, engineered today by the wonderful Kalia Chapman. Thank you, Kalia. And, uh, of course, Ed Smith. We will be back next week. Until then, everybody, stay safe. And uh, like we're saying today, don't, don't uh, try not to work so hard, but uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. There you go. Peace, Chris. Take care. This is a public service announcement.